City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, City Limits on the air. It's the... um it's a fourth Wednesday, isn't it, of the month? That's right, because next week's the first Wednesday. Um, fourth Wednesday of the month, and we, we've got um, two guests today. We're going to have Helen Vandenberg, who's a regular irregular or a irregular regular, whatever she is, um, well-known activist from the northwestern suburbs of Melbourne, been on the program for a long time, and today she's going to talk about the Coolaroo fire a couple of weeks ago, which is still going in many ways. It's still hitting spot fires there, etc. And the second half, we're going to talk to Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, their anti-uranium campaigner, about the state of uranium in this country and the fact that we seem to be uh, ignoring the rest of the world, which has realised that uranium's had it, but we haven't realised it yet. Um, and uranium, of course, thank God uranium's had it, because if it, if, if it got it, we'd all be had it. So <laughs> we can follow that mad logic. Um, so, and I did mention to people we'd probably have John Passant on today, the ex um, ex commissioner, assistant commissioner of taxation, who comes on and talks about economic issues with us. But unfortunately, we can't have John on again for another toward the end of the academic year now, actually, because he's currently lecturing in Sydney and he's on a train at this time every Wednesday. Well, he's lecturing on Wednesdays in Sydney anyway, and he's on a train heading because he lives down the coast. And um, and he, he he made the point that his phone. Doesn't it drops out regularly on the train, so he couldn't do an interview. And I pointed out to him, but also his co-passengers would find it fascinating the sort of stuff he'd be talking about. So there we are. They have a free university <laughs> lecture <laughs> on the right. train every Wednesday morning, or a free free lesson on uh, the problems of capitalism <laughs> um, as they're heading off to their capitalist employer. Um, I'm just going to pour some tea here. Oh, isn't that good? Thank you, Andy. That's very nicely done. That beautiful. Well done. Um, you don't want one of them. Do you want one of them? I'll have one. What's when you're ready, you have the pots there. Just grab it. Um, now, just a few things before we go on to Helen. Um, did you have anything you wanted to raise today at all? Um, I we, last time I was here, which was two weeks ago. Yes, we were talking Obviously, about. We didn't say, sorry, I haven't said who we were really, have I? You're, that's right. Megan Kimber's in the studio today. Andy's yeah. pressing buttons. Andy Britton. I'm Kevin Healy, and Mark can't make it in today. But yeah, sorry. Back to where you were. Oh, that's all right. Um, I did notice I was reading the National Tertiary Education <laughs> Union's uh, magazine, and last time I was here, we were talking about conditions in the universities. Yep. And the NTEU were. Um, putting a lot of pressure on the universities at the moment. A lot of uh, workplace agreements are being uh, renegotiated. Uh, in, uh, and they specifically spoke about, talked about the University of Tasmania and Murdoch University in Perth and um, Deakin in, in Melbourne. So, And talking about conditions for teachers and also outcomes for students and costs. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll bet the universities are putting up a fight against what they want. They to, are, uh, yeah. yeah. What made you think of that? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> sprung to How mind. How could you guess that? Well, here's a case of someone who, if he did go to university, well, he was in the United States, so he might have gone to university because you don't have to be right over there. But um, And Florida again. Last time we talked about Florida was the bloke who sat on the gun in his car and shot himself in the in the privates. Remember that? Mm. Two weeks ago. That was two weeks ago. Well, this is Florida again. It must be, it must, they must it's beat him down there. Place, yeah, it must yeah. beat him down in Florida. This 
this one's a classic. He, 32-year-old David Blackman, he called the cops to report a theft from his car. <laughs> now this is really this 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 gets the this gets the the giant mind of the week award, and generally that's a tough one, but he stands out this week. Um, David rang the coppers to report people had stolen his money and his his dope, his cocaine from his car. He rang the cops oh. to say someone stolen me dope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how bright, how brilliant. Oh, yeah. Anyway, fascinating. Sort of cash and a cache of cocaine, so to speak. But <laughs> um, he, um, it turned out that he was obviously high as a kite because they the cops found it in the car anyway, along with his crack pipe. Oh. Um, so they did make an arrest out of the incident, but uh, wasn't what he wanted when he rang up. At least he found what he thought he'd lost. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. always a relief. <laughs> it's, it's, now, it's now evidence. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, yeah, so it's one of the brightest souls in the world, the old Florida woman. What's Florida? Good God. What is going on in yes. Florida? And, but good news on, on that front, good news for Australian jobs. Um, um, Christopher Pine, the uh, indus- Defence Industry Minister, Christopher Payne in the, he um, he's vowed to make Australia a major defence exporter so our workers can make lots of money making weapons that kill people. Isn't that mm, wonderful? Yeah, following yeah. in the American... There's been a move in that direction. It's just great to know that there's jobs in killing people, which Mm -hmm. is great. Um, Now, this was interesting because this week we know um, Bill Shorten's jumped on this inequality stuff. Um, As if inequality's just occurred. A bloke has been with the union movement, labour movement for years, and he's just discovered inequality in Australia, which shows that Bill's on the spot. Perhaps perhaps he's been in Florida for a while. (laughs) Anyway... Bill's got inequality and he's also attacking trusts and this has brought the usual suspects out but it turns out that half the front bench, half the ministers, um, 13 of the 22 ministers have a trust of some sort, Julie Bishop's beneficiary of two and a trustee of four. very much fewer in the Labor side were in trust and some of those were to do with superannuation funds. But um, Kelly, anyway, and of course it's raised, the point's raised that these things actually um, are, a, are a way of avoiding tax, as we know. You know, you split your income <coughs> and you pay a lot less, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But Kelly O'Dwyer, the Revenue and Financial Services Minister, who's a beneficial of two family trusts, said the rich were not using family trusts to opt out of the tax system. And she got stuck into Labor saying, you know, trusts are used for charity, for philanthropy, for people with disabilities, and is Labor opposed to philanthropy and people with disabilities? She turned mm. it that way mm. and said, you know, they, there's no one, they, they simply don't use them to avoid tax. Now, right next to that, there's a story where, in fact, uh, Pitcher Partners tax consultant Max Northeast said if individual rates were lower, a lot of the impetus for tax planning would disappear. And he points out that they, you know, all they all they exist for, in fact, is to um, is to is to avoid tax. So in the same mm. page, we seem to have two different points of view, which I find a bit interesting. Mm. It's argued that two billion a year, in fact, is lost to the tax department by these things. Uh, and, but That's Scott, just from Google, though, I think. Yeah, well, that yeah. was probably, well they don't pay any. Um, Scott Morrison has uh, said that the inequality is a lie. It's not, uh, it's not true anyway. So that, that probably puts an end to that argument, doesn't it? I think if Scott Morrison has said, then I think that's it. That's it, no doubt. Um, and yet, the next day there's an article that says inequality up in the, oh. first, in the headline. Um, I'm having some trouble following all this. 
Um, can you follow this, Andy, at all? No, it's beyond me. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Um, anyway, that's that seems to be the case. Um, yesterday in the Financial Review, Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute, uh, he had an article in which he got stuck into all of his stuff, and he seemed to he seemed to feel it was simply used as a tax dodge. But um, you know, he's he's a lefty, isn't he? He, mm. he would say that, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Kelly O'Dwyer, though, speaking of Kelly, she's currently on a major campaign to reform superannuation, which the Financial Review of his headline, Super Reforms Long Overdue, is their own headline, um, shows that they support it. And, of course, what they're supporting, although she denies it, is that uh, the, the most efficient superannuation funds, the industry funds, are run by trade unions with trade union um, appointees on the boards, uh, together with employer appointees, but, of course, the big banks want to get their hands on all that, mm. d- despite the fact that the the super funds run by the banks and the big financial institutions have inferior results to those run by the industry super funds because mm. the industry super funds take a lot less fees out of it. Mm. She's her, her campaign really is to transfer all that money over to the big financial institutions on the argument that they they know how to run these things and the others don't. Mm. So if you don't, you obviously make more money because that's the way it's working out. But, that is um, de- genuinely scary. Yeah, well, that's yeah. that's what they're after. That's mm. what they're after. And this one I thought was interesting. Um, the city of Yarra... I'm going to have a sip of tea, by the way. Say something now, someone, Andy. They can say... Well, that was good to say something. <laughs> nice bit of silence there. The city of Yarra, there's a laneway next to the Princess Hill Community Centre. And they, it hasn't got a name, and they want to give it a name. They asked the local Aboriginal, the Wurundjeri tribe elders, and they come up with the name Bargung, which means together in their language. And um, so what's wrong with that? We say, well, that sounds okay. All the locals, presumably around Carlton there, some of the sort of trendies who've moved in or whatever, are complaining like mad. They say it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's too harsh sounding and it could become bogan. People could call it bogan. Isn't that terrible? Or mm. bagging or something. And uh, no one can pronounce the name. I suggest you add some guide on the sign, etc. One bloke said we should call it Bootlace Lane after the boot factory that used to be there. Well, suppose they could find out what bootlace is in Aboriginal language, although they didn't have bootlaces, so it might be mm. difficult. Um, but anyway, that's um, that's that one, and and it happens that a lot of people complain about these things because they're they're um, they they're too easy to pronounce, they're too difficult to pronounce, spell or write, etc. So um, it seems to me that uh, what we should do is maybe anglicise the Indigenous names or something because you can't just let the Indigenous people run right and call things after their own language, can you? That's a very dis- concerning mm. article. I'm surprised <laughs> that in this in 20, 2017, right, I'm amazed that <laughs> this is a, the conversation that's happening. Well, let's hope the city of Yarra stands by it. I can't think of anything uh, funny to say about that. I think it's tragic. No, it is tragic. That's right. It it is. It is. Absolutely. Um, Now, another headline this week, Goldman Sachs takes over White House. Everyone knows, of course, Goldman Sachs is one of the big... Um, the big world accounting companies and its biggest, you know, America, it runs riot. Uh, and they, you know, it points out so many of the people that Trump's appointed around him, including the latest one, Anthony Scaramucci, who's the new uh, communications bloke, uh, or over there, communications guy. Um, he is another 
alumni. They're calling them alumni, although I didn't realise Goldman Sachs was an educational institution, but uh, I presume it educates people to love capitalism, so maybe it is. Um, but anyway, Goldman Sachs alumni, and uh, I, I raise this because it then points out how many people around the world uh, and the way Goldman Sachs have have have, have entrenched themselves in all sorts of places to have political and economic influence. And it, um, it points out that, um, that, that well, well, there's the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, the European Central Bank President Mario Draghi, uh, New York Federal Reserve President William Dudley, but also, of course, our very own Prime Minister Malcolm was a former global partner in, in the uh, in the bank as a as a as a banker, and this is the bit I wanted to raise because it shows Malcolm's innate modesty. I think here, um, mm. um, Malcolm said quite modestly, "I used to be a partner of Goldman Sachs, so there's a lot of very smart people over the years who have worked for Goldman Sachs." <laughs> is, isn't that modesty run riot? Yeah. Yes, good old Malcolm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dear, dear. American yeah. politics yeah. is an interesting uh, situation. Yeah. And uh, it seems more and more that Australian yeah. sort of politics is following in that people are looking to America for inspiration for oh. a lot of things. Oh, yes, yeah. that's right. Do we have, well, they're, they're, um, uh, you know, I made a piece on Saturday the other week saying, well, a July 4 piece saying that where England used to be the mother country, now... Really, America is our mm. Uncle Sam country, yeah. but Donald's changed the law, so now it's our Uncle Donald country, and uh, mm. there we are, see, so that's okay. Mm. But yeah, it, it is certainly, and it, we just keep kowtowing and licking bootstraps, and if one wanted to be nasty, licking. Um, this is an interesting piece, and we'll go to uh, Helen Vandenberg after this, but... Um, because the, the real estate industry, the development industry, have said for ages the way to lower house prices is to open up more land on the outskirts, open up more land for development. That'll mm-hmm. bring prices down. But a study by the Community Housing Limited uh, has shown that, in fact, it doesn't work. Uh, even though more lands open up, prices keep rising. Oh, fascinating. Yes, yes it didn't lower prices. Now, isn't that stunning? Who would yeah. have believed that? Yeah. You can't sort of legislate for ethics is the problem. And like the, there's a lot of people who do want to see affordable housing and would like to. I think, you know, that there could be solutions that work with communities and development. But um, when the be-all and end-all of the system is profit, then that's that's yeah. what everybody's working towards, and yeah, it's seen as. I, I kind of disagree with you slightly there. I think they do. They do legislate for the ethics of capitalism. Well, that's that's a really good point. <laughs> that's true. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Perhaps they don't legislate for our sort of ethics. Yeah, that's <laughs> a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. Anyway, how are you this morning, Andy? You haven't said a word yet. Um, well, yeah, yeah, no, cause... just. Chilling out over here. Oh, right. <laughs> is there, is there air con- I think there's air conditioning here. We're all pretty warm. <laughs> yeah. In it's fact, cooling Megan's, down a little Megan's, bit now. Megan's got a top and no sleeves. She's, I know. It's very hot. It was, it was tropical out, outside this morning. Yeah. Was, but yeah. but yeah. as I said, I bet you had more on when you rode your bike here, though. I did. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, okay, look, we'll take a break. Come back. We're going to talk to Helen Vandenberg now about the Coolaroo. Oh, we did say what we're going to talk to her about. We are going to talk to her about the Coolaroo fires and um, and the role of the EPA and the government and the company and all that sort of stuff. Okay. 
Radio and Helen Vandenberg's on the line. Helen, uh, thanks for coming on today. Good uh, morning, Kevin, Andy, <laughs> and Megan. And Megan, Megan. Um, and uh, Helen, we just wanted to have a yarn to you about the Kuru Fire because you've been so involved for so long in, in toxic waste and dumps and things like that <laughs> part of the world. Um, and the, the fire, well, it's still going in some ways. They're still attacking spot fires. But uh, mm. your first thoughts on what happened out there? Oh, it's heartbreaking because... For a start, um, if it was a licensed premises, why? Where was the auditing and checking of the licensed conditions? Um, and these, uh, which I think should have been an EPA responsibility, they're telling us that it was Hume Council's responsibility. And I think this is just further proof of the fact that you can deregulate an industry and it just doesn't work because the EPA can give out licences and say these are the conditions and then it becomes the local government who are not trained in the EPA Act who then have to rely on residents to say there's a problem. Now, if we had community rights in the EPA Act and we want those rights when the regulations are are, um, written next year... The local community who know of four fires could have gone to VCAT and taken action against the polluter. So there's two things. EPA can give a licence and leave the burden of regulation to uh, an ill-trained council officers. And the community has no direct action, uh, no legal action available to them. Secondly, the stockpiling issue is further proof that the recycling game has been lost in Victoria and that successive governments have failed to do what they ought to have done. Now, it's a government's role to lead. We can't even get recycled containers in this state because of the effectiveness of the lobbying of the packaging industry. Then we have... So we've got all this plastic waste going down our streams into our rivers out to the bay and then out to the Pacific. This is a closed loop on this planet and we all have to take responsibility both at an individual and a government level. Governments in Victoria, for instance, we have uh, a landfill levy which Tim Pallas seems to be happy to bank because it helps keep his AAA rating. Mm. He's the and, treasurer, just for people, I'm not sure people know that, but he's the yeah. treasurer. Yeah. And then, well, if he's got a AAA rating, then he can borrow money to set up better recycling facilities. Government has to lead here in two ways. They have to act urgently, like to make sure that we minimise waste to begin with, that there's effective recycling and that what's protracted... Uh, the waste that we can't get rid of, we can incinerate in a in a, the safest possible way. Mm. Just taking stockpiles to landfill just inevitably means you're going to cause pollution of the groundwater, which is a priceless resource, which we know is going to be extremely important in the dry future that we've got ahead of us. So why can't they lead by both improving the recycling industry and creating jobs Make, setting up waste to in, industry and then having a process by which if you get a licence to um, recycle waste, then it has to be supervised by the EPA, which probably means they'll need more officers to be out there on the ground checking things regularly. Because not only have we had the Coolaroo fire, we had the fire in Campbellfield that went up twice 
right? And I know a person who um, was working near that facility who was trying to get both Hume Council and EPA to act before the silly guy who's part of a Phoenix company lit the thing and started the fire. She was saying, if this goes up, it's going to be a health risk. Nobody took any direct action effectively on that issue. And just because he didn't have a licence, it seemed to be in no man's land because the guy had done it elsewhere and now had popped up here again. And by the way, I think he's popped up somewhere further north of here again. You know, and, and they just flee the state for a while while the law is pursuing them and then they finally arrest them and take them. But the thing is, if we had effective recycling processes and if we had governments and industry procuring um, uh, products that have been um, produced through recycling by using you know, reusing materials, then there'd be a market. At the moment, the government leaves it open to the market forces and the market forces don't care. Yeah, Helen, and we all know that old story, and we're all sick of it. Helen, it's interesting because we we innocents who put our bin out every week, we've been assuming for ages that our stuff gets recycled properly. Uh, yet in this case, it turned out that for five months it had been stockpiled, and that's what actually burnt because of a fire earlier in the year. The company, interesting, in the same conversation, the company said they're the only ones prepared to invest in, in equipment for this thing, but obviously they <laughs> hadn't. Um, but also, it's, since then, it's been discovered that other plants they run elsewhere around the western suburbs and of Melbourne uh, also have stockpiled and haven't actually been recycling. So it's happening at all their plants. So it, it seems to be a real problem with this company. Yes, I think the company needs to be held accountable, but also I think the government needs to be accountable and the EPA needs to be accountable because how did this, all this happen? Yeah, Who's not yeah. watching the game closely enough to be able to advise government that we have a problem that needs action? Because I can't see any evidence that the current Victorian government is serious about recycling and reducing waste. And they came in on a platform where they said they were going to put the Parks Victoria back on their feet. They haven't done that either. The Liberals sacked 320 and Labor's put back 60. Mm -hmm. That's not putting them back on the feet. It seems to me that, you know, with short-term governments, I mean, well, the state government's got a four-year set term. That gives them a bit more time for leadership. At a federal level, well, nobody's thinking of the long game. But the point is... If we don't address the waste issue effectively, we're just being we're just being irresponsible. On top of that, if Europe ran out of land 30 years ago for landfilling, so they had to come up with things. All the ways you can do this are well established now. Waste to energy plants is over 150, I think, of them in Europe. There's 74 on the east coast of New South Wales. None in Australia. Why not? You said New South Wales. You didn't mean New South Wales, then, did you? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> no. Um, Helen, there's um, a, a lot of people who were evacuated from their home. This fire was in July, right? And there's a lot of people who've been evacuated from their homes. Um, what Do you get a feeling for what people are talking You said that some citizens were you know, wanted to protest and wanted to get in touch with people but didn't know where to get in touch. What's the kind of, how are people feeling in the areas around, around well, these places? Well, I haven't spoken to anybody directly mm. connected to the fire. All I know is from the other Hume residents, they're sick of it all. They mm. said, look, this is another large-scale fire that we in Hume and a different pocket of residents have had to put up with the immediate health impacts, and we know it's no mm. good for anybody's respiratory health. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, that waste's gone into the air and it's going to circle around for a while, isn't it? Mm. 
So, but the 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 point I'm making is that as citizens, we don't we've got no avenue where we can take action against a polluter because we have no rights under the EPA Act. Now, mm. the next act is supposed to we've been lobbying, and Environmental Justice Australia has been lobbying to ensure that we get those third party rights. And this is a classic case of where you need them. Yet we're hearing that industry is out there lobbying other people in the cabinet in an attempt to roll Lily D'Ambrio's from her uh, mission to get it into the she, Again, she's the minister responsible for this. She's the environment minister. Yeah, yeah, and we don't have a problem with her, but I think we might have a problem with some of her colleagues, and, and I think the biggest obstacle will be the treasurer who just looks at pounds... Oh, I'm going to say pounds, shillings and pence. Mm. That all the, <laughs> dollars, the dollars and cents, dollars and cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's who like looks the at current... the dollar issue and is not yes. looking at the legacy <laughs> issues, you know. We have a responsibility to the next generation. Yesterday, I was working with 22 students and three teachers from Pimley and Essendon Grammar School. Fantastic youth. They're from the Social Justice Middle School group. And a month ago, I had the Senior Social Justice group. And those kids are so well informed of injustices and so concerned about it and care about the environment. And that's the generation that we've let down. Well and truly, we've let that. I'm quite sure these kids had had really fantastic ethics and they will be out there doing good. Uh, They were just inspiring to me. But when I said to them, well, I think my generation's kind of let you down, they looked a bit shocked, but a few heads were nodding. Mm. Like, yeah. And I said, look, you know, it's... Where's our sense of responsibility as elders in the community and... um, to have not done a better job of putting the governments under pressure so that they change. I mean, some of us have worked pretty hard, but most people you talk to just say, it's all a waste of time, Helen. You can't get through money talks all the time. And, of course, we haven't got on it yet, but part of the answer has to be also that we produce less of this stuff in the first place. Well, of course we do. And besides that, we don't... Look, Yoss and I gave up using plastic bags who's, when who's we went your, shopping. Who's your partner, by the way? I'm, I can, I can, yeah, we've been know. together 49 years this year. Um, <laughs> it should be a Nobel Prize for us in that, I think. <laughs> um, the, um, we just started taking our shopping bags in the 80s, right, when, and people stared at us. But you go into any shopping centre today and you'll still see people going out with plastic bags. Yet, if you look at the, uh, no, what is it, the Inner West... Um, I've got their their um, their little flyer on how you make your own beeswax wrappers here. No plastic bag in a West Group. They've got a Facebook page, and they're out there. And there's a and they've got connections. You can see other connections to um, citizens, residents, and well, I'd rather say citizens, citizens groups all around the countryside, looking at how can we personally take responsibility and reduce our reliance on plastic, right? And it's got to come at all levels. It's got to be individual, corporations and government. There's just no one can be excused from this responsibility. Yeah. And, of course, your point is that... And, of course, I want big fines for companies that um, break the law. I want the Treasurer to really fund the EPA so that there are people on the ground checking these sites. And I want the leadership from the government in creating better recycling processes and so that we don't stockpile Mm. because at the moment i mean here we've got plans for a big hub which will be another form of a a stockpile at ravenhall werribee and Willert. 
Yeah. So, you know, we're not learning from the mistakes, we're repeating them. And and can we just ask why we think they put all these things in that part of the world and not in, say, you know, find a little spot in Brighton or Turak or Camberwell or somewhere to put these things? Land's cheaper this side. Right. Yes. Uh, Economic imperative. <laughs> Besides yes. that, we're flat out here, so it's easy to get around. Mm. Yeah. Well, if you disregard the fact that most of our creeks and our lovely Maribyrnong River go through very deep gorges and this, and we have mm. steep escarpments and we have a dramatic landscape out here yeah. and our waterways are precious and they're all polluted and half dead now. Well, well, a couple of companies that send recycling material, not just local government, but companies that send it to these places have pointed out that because there's reviews going on and it's all being held up, that for the next several months they're going to have to put all the recycled material into landfill anyway and um, so you know what's the the whole recycling thing seems to have gone belly up it has because no government labor or liberal has done what it was supposed to do they don't even spend all the landfill levy on setting up better recycling facilities or and they don't ensure that companies and governments have a procurement policy for instance replas fantastic company um, makes, you know, uses its plastic. It was featured in the Four Corners program of War on Waste, showing what they make. And it's um, outdoor furniture, bollards. They, you can construct a um, a walkway over, you know, a trail over water. I can't even remember the word. Bridge. But it, and or be, the or point be is, Jesus Christ, one of the two. No, it's. <laughs> It's a boardwalk, and it's made out of plastic. And it's, and they haven't got enough customers. So even if councils, you know, if all councils were doing it, if all schools got information given to them about this is where you can go to get equipment and use bollards um, and you can get seating and you can get tree protections um, for your trees then they'd have more orders, they'd be able to use it because they they have a, a place in, in um, Ballarat where they stockpile the waste that they can't put through their system while they're waiting for mm. more orders. But I've never heard of it going up in smoke, so I dare say it's properly run. Yeah. Helen, you did mention incinerators, and most people now consider incinerators to be quite dangerous and polluting. Well, we um, did in the 1990s yeah. for very good reasons because they weren't up to date, but they are much better now and the scrubbers are effective. And um, on a bad day, the waste-to-energy plant in Paris, I uh, was told by somebody who went to visit it, on a bad day, it has uh, a very, very low level of dioxin going out of it. That's not good. But we can't get a system where we can have perfectly clean um, processing. At the moment, we have got most of our groundwater is still clean, but not all. We've got polluted rivers and creeks everywhere, particularly in the West. And we have to find a resolution. And we can't just keep making waste mountains like you do down at Werribee. The issue is bigger than that. So we may have to take a process that is not not 100% um, without impact. But, we, you know, it, the other kind of impact is much worse at the moment. So I'm never very keen on anything that generates any dioxin. But if in the end this is the only way we can get rid of intractable waste, then we'll have to do it. But then we have to make sure we don't we stop generating the intractable waste as well. 
It's uh, got to be a two-pronged After approach. this fire, they also found dead fish, and um, someone said the waterways nearby were incapable in, after the fire. The Mary Creek would have been yes, impacted. They, 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 were, they were incapable of, uh, of maintaining life at all uh, in the few days after the fire. So That's not yeah. uncommon. Yeah. I mean, when we had 20,000 litres in Steel Creek here last April 12 months in 2016, the emphasis was on... Um, trying to get the truck up off the car and remove the deceased person or persons at the time. They didn't know how many people had been killed in that crash. And then the, um, the, then the environmental action was ordered and it took 40 minutes before a boom was put in place. But, you know, I hardly had a dragonfly in my garden last summer and, you know, that's directly t- connected to the fact that the nymphs of damselflies and dragonflies can take up to two years, so they need clean water with good oxygen in it for two years. Well, you can't get that in Steel Creek, not in this section of it anyhow. Mm. And, you know, I haven't... You know, I heard fewer frogs last year, but nobody's been out to monitor what's going on in that creek. I mean, you really only have to check the macroinvertebrate population um in autumn and spring to know what's going on. And we used to do it, but we found out that it didn't matter if we collected data for seven years, there was no change in improvement in water quality in the creek. So we said, well, what are we wasting our time for? We're not just going to be citizen science for no dividend. Mm. So can we hope that a positive out of all this is that the EPA might start taking the whole thing much more seriously and keeping an eye on all this? Well, I think they've got to because... There is an atmosphere of um, hope amongst some EPA officers that we meet because of the new Act, but I still think, and it's something that I was quite happy to say to Dr Andrea Hindwood last week when we met her, mm, she's only been the, at EPA, the EPA yeah, yeah. she's a chief scientist and yeah. that's a good position to be at, and she came across as committed, progressive and candid. Now, if she can maintain that in the EPA, that's got to have a good influence further yes. down the track. <laughs> and Niall has if, been big if given those around her, but go on, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you got. I just said, well, you've got a lot of di- you've got some dinosaurs that need to go. You know, how can you have a landfill unit in EPA that thinks they did a good job when they only gave clean away forty five percent of what they asked in their asked for in their amber claim for a you that know was for the, that, the Raven top... Hall one. Yeah, well, and I said yes, to yes. them. And the other thing I uh, asked the um, chief scientist to investigate is how many people in that organisation actually understand what environmental justice means? Because when I speak to their officers, apart from the person who liaises with us out at Tulla, I don't find anybody who understands it. And the bottom line is release the, reduce the burden from those suffering. How can anybody in the EPA claim that by continuing at Ravenhall on a larger scale and at Werribee and at Woolert, they are reducing the pollution burden on those communities? I mean, those people are not without brains. Mm. So where's their commitment to environmental justice? Where is, do they honestly think that we think they're treating us as equals? Because we don't and we're angry about it. And we call that attitude a dinosaur one and we're happy for them to be out of the EPA. And I'm quite happy to take that argument up with their union as well. Well, let's finish on that. Because everybody wants modern wages, but they don't want. Some of them won't change to modern information, and that's unacceptable. 
All right, Helen, we'll leave it on that note, but hope, <laughs> hopefully there's a positive. Um, and yeah, thanks there for is your a time. positive. Yeah. There's a female chief scientist who I think is going to have a good impact on the EPA, provided those dinosaurs in there don't wear her down. Right. Well, good luck with that. I'm sure with you with you at their backs, they, they'll be in real trouble. I wish that was true. <laughs> Helen, look, thanks for your time. We'll pick Thank this up. You. We'll pick this up again shortly, though, because there's more coming up. I know. And there's also, oh, oh you got an event next weekend. Just want to get. Oh a yes, to we it? do. Yeah, yeah. Um, courtesy the Port Phillip and Catchment Authority, Port Phillip and Western Port Catchment Authority, we got a grant, and we're having our final planting on Sunday, which happens to be National Tree Day. We're down at Lily Street in um, West Essendon. And we'll be there from 11 o'clock till 2. The committee will be there a bit longer than that. And we'll be putting in a 1,000 plants. Um, and this is a very cultural heritage significant site. We've had occupation in the Maribyrnong Valley for more than 35,000 years. So if you want to come and meet uh, Uncle David Wanden, who will be speaking about the um, Healesville eel trap project that he's been involved in you better get there early because uncle david's got to go to a book launch later on for uh barrack versus the black hats of melbourne mm. so yeah it's going to be a great day on sunday that sounds right. lovely so what time is that 11 o'clock to two o'clock and o'clock. if you can only stay half an hour you can still get um well you probably won't be as quick as the kids yesterday but you can still get three <laughs> or four plants in in that time okay lily street west isn't it it's terrific okay Thank you. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for your bye, time. Bye, Megan. Bye, Andy. See you. Helen Vandenberg there. Um, and um, when that good news, by the way, I was looking for something, and when that thing fell on the floor, that crash a little while ago, it's now staring up at what I was looking at, so that worked out very well. Um, Extremely fortuitous. Yes, which was actually the number, the next number we want for uh, Dave Sweeney, whom we'll talk to after this break. Okay, Dave Sweeney on the line. Dave from the Australian Conservation Foundation, of course, their anti-uranium campaigner. And Dave, um, around the world at the moment, uranium seems to be having lots of trouble. Companies going broke, massive overcosts, overcosts in um, overshoots in in where they are building plants. And yet, Australia doesn't seem to have learnt the lesson at all, does it? Yeah, good morning, Kevin. Um, and I've got I've got Megan in the studio with me as well. Oh, by good way. morning, Kevin. Hello, Megan. Hi. Um, yeah, look, that's. That's, uh, that introduction has absolutely summed it up. This, uh, oh, we can go uh, down there. That's it. We can. You save you know, eight minutes of everyone's life. And good on you yeah. for that. It's a precious thing. Um, that, yeah, unlike uranium, which is not a precious thing, the commodity price is, is still going south, and that's directly related to the decline of nuclear power globally. And you're absolutely right. Um, what's happening in Australia is this extraordinary dissonance, this massive gap between evidence and representation. The evidence around the world is that the nuclear sector is in profound and steady decline. Uh, it's not quite dead, but it's certainly um, um, in ICU. Just to elaborate on that a fraction, uh, Dave, uh, 10 years ago in 2007, uranium was selling at 140 US dollars a pound. It's now selling at $20 a US pound. That's a bit of a drop. Well, it, it, it really speaks volumes, doesn't it? 140 bucks. Um, and when 140 bucks was more than it is now, to 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, like it, the, the real world price of the commodity is such that Australian uh, uranium sector is in rapid decline. It's uh, the, the major players are either not expanding or closing, BHP, Billiton, or, and particularly Rio Tinto, getting out of uranium. Um, 
did not pursue an opportunity to expand mining at the ranger site, which was welcome, and now actively getting out of that site. And the challenge for them now is not mining, but rehabilitation and cleaning up the mess of mining in Kakadu. Um, and no new mines in uh, South Australia and Western Australia, um, in Queensland, under the previous Conservative uh, Newman government, despite massive subsidies, inducements, benefits, fast-tracking, despite accelerated approvals process. And all and all the time, it keeps coming back to the difference between the conference statement, the, the PowerPoint presentation, and the market. The reality on the ground is that, that people don't want it. The market over, is oversupplied, and that is um, not so much a supply-side thing, but a demand-side thing, because there is a, a serious and consistent shrinking in, in the nu- role of nuclear power globally. In the same way as you spoke about the uranium price over a decade or so, Kim, the, in, you know, 15 years ago, nuclear power was providing over 20% of the world's electricity. Um, now it's providing 10%. So it has had a massive fall in a decade. And it's going, it's still going further south. And, and it is not going to bounce back because, uh, you know, the, the key thing is the growth of renewables. In Australia, we still have this, we have a, a fight over renewables and we still have like significant energy policy shapers and politicians who think that renewable energy, the first thing they think of is Gilligan's Island, you know, Gilligan pedalling on the bike to keep the radio going. The, it's, that they are so off the mark. The fifth largest industrial economy in the world is Germany. They are moving out of nuclear power and they are aggressively embracing renewables. And the sixth largest new, uh, industrial uh, economic state in, in the world is the state of California, and they are doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. We've got Japan, the third largest economic force in the world, and nuclear power post-Fukushima is... Uh, in complete stall, like the pause button has been pushed and despite the strongest efforts or a very assertive Prime Minister Abe to open up nuclear reactors, they've only had two or three open because of really deep disaffection and and a lack of social licence in communities and prefectures where they're located. So if you put all the pieces together, we're in the midst of a profound shift in how we make energy on this planet and the shift is away from radioactive and into renewables and it's simply not reflected in either policy or statements or the positioning of um, the major parties and the major media commentators in Australia. Mm. The, you, it's obviously a global issue when Australia's mining uranium and selling it to other countries. You mentioned that it's been uh, in in decline, the use of, of uh, nuclear power. Um, which countries are still using and um, and which ones have sort of, you mentioned Japan and, and Germany were, were moving out, but um, which countries are still using nuclear power? What's the economic? Mm. The, well, it, it still is, absolutely, mm. Megan. It still is, you know, 10% of the world's electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not nothing. Mm. Um and the the great hopes for the nuclear industry are like the hopes for much of uh, Western world trade are China and India. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, like a lot of talk that those countries with their huge populations will embrace um, 
lots of uh, of new build nuclear. Mm. That when you look at it, um, it doesn't really stack up like that. Like nuclear power is less than five percent of India's electricity supply now mm. today. Mm. So I think it's about I think it's under three and a half percent. So it's not a big figure, and if you look to it, um, the that's not likely to greatly rise. There's plans for for ten new reactors, and um, Prime Minister Modi is is very pro nuclear in a, a lot of rhetoric, but it, but also he's he's very pro renewable. He's pro electricity, mm. much the same as China is, and there's lots of of um, major challenges that are. Um, facing the the nuclear sector in India. Pro- predominantly, it's a question, it's, it's cost and social licence are the two big ones. Mm. It, and so the sense is that it will continue to be an expensive, a costly and, and relatively minor contributor. Um, and in China, which is the other one that uh, keeps the, the nuclear industry uh, hopeful, we have seen, you know, uh, again, um, a doubling of, of renewables rather than uh, nuclear. We've seen the the uh, um, the um, growth in in renewables and the surprising growth in citizen protest around um, nuclear plants and mm. enrichment and fabric fuel fabrication plants. Mm. There's a lot of concern in China about um, Fukushima, mm. um, and you know there's also a lot of concern by people too. It quite senior people over the adequacy of, of the regulatory framework, the adequacy of construction contracts and all that, because every time one of those significant bills goes wrong, um, there are real concerns. What if this was a nuclear power plant? Look, having said that, China's got 35 reactors. Mm. It's got um, around 18 or 20, I, I believe, under construction now. So it is... Um, the country that is has the most significant nuclear expansion. Mm. There's no question about that. Mm. Um, but it's also uh, it, it's one that doesn't that still faces lots of concern and opposition, Megan. And probably the thing that you need to bear in mind is that nuclear reactors, like every complex piece of technology, have um, they've got a shelf life, they've got a use by date, mm. um, and generally that's forty years. You, you get forty years after which you need um, uh, a license extension. That pretty much is how it works. Mm. After that, there's in brittle pipes and pumps and things. The safety systems aren't as reliable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in the old days, and by that I mean pre Fukushima. You used to be able to just get a licence extension like putting in a form online. It was just cursory. It was a, a ticker box exercise. Mm. Since Fukushima, the degree of social concern and community concern, understandably, about this industry has meant that regulators have been either emboldened or established. And they actually require now some uh, some proof that there's been upgrades in systems, replacements of critical parts, duplication of, of um, you know safety systems, etc., and that means that many places now are retiring older plants rather than spending money to upgrade mm. them. Mm. And, and there's 420 reactors in the world and 140 of them hit that, hit that point either today or in the next eight years. At which point, of course, you then got to work out what to do with the bloody thing. Oh, absolutely. Like, this industry will be an issue forever, Kevin. It will be an issue forever because even when it stops, the waste that it's created doesn't. What you do get 
you dig uranium up, you turn it into enriched fuel, and you get three years' worth of electricity. After that, you get 100,000 years' worth of a carcinogenic waste product that needs to be isolated from people on the planet. It's a really poor trade, three years' worth of electricity for 100,000 years' worth of potential cancer and risk. Um, so there, there is this massive question, and that's where industry now, like the global industry now, is more talking about decommissioning, waste management, long-term waste storage and disposal options, that sort of stuff rather than um, this uh, sort of dream of a nuclear-powered future. I think a lot of serious players, particularly in Western Europe, increasingly in North America, are saying that, you know, we had that era and it's effectively over. Um, we are at the tail end of that. We, we supply nuclear fuel. Um, we, we do that increasingly irresponsibly with sales to India and Ukraine and lots of places where there's lots of problems. Um, we directly fueled Fukushima and none of the major parties have learnt or changed one bit of policy or requirement in the light of that continuing Australian fueled nuclear disaster. Um, and we have just um, derailed the most recent attempt to open part of Australia up to posting global radioactive waste, international high-level radioactive waste in South Australia. That plan, due to community opposition, has now been scrapped or at least derailed till the next time it puts its head up. Uh, so we are sort of like latecomers into an industry that is in decline. And the very clear uh, perspective of, you know, Friends of the Earth, the Australian Conservation Foundation, many Aboriginal groups, many trade unions, many, many people, is that this industry was never a good idea um, and it is increasingly a poor idea, a poor return, and it's not necessary. There are cheaper and cleaner ways to provide electricity and people and nations are grabbing them. So it's you, time to exit. You mentioned about waste. Um, in, in terms of the uranium that's mined in Australia, is any of it, does any of it stay in Australia? Is it all sold offshore? And, you know, what happens to the waste of that? And indeed the first boatload's just gone to India. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Megan, we... we uh, we mine 100% of the uranium we mine, which is about mm. 5,000 tonnes of, of uranium oxide a year. Mm. 100% of it goes overseas. We don't use any here. Right. Um, we, we have no commercial or, or uh, nuclear power or we have no reactors that generate electricity. We have mm. a small reactor in southern Sydney run by the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation for research and medical and, and industrial isotopes. That creates radioactive waste, and it's a problem, it's an issue. We've mm -hmm. got an issue on now about how we most responsibly manage that. But we don't have the big volumes of high-level waste that mm -hmm. nations that have power uh, reactors do. It all goes overseas. It used to be a third to Asia, um, you know, Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, a third to the European Union states, and a third to the US. Mm. Um, the Asian um, market has com has significantly um, been reduced. The Japanese market has just halted. Um, the Taiwanese market is shrinking. Taiwan's made a decision to retire its dozen nuclear reactors, mm. um, and it's shutting the door on them. Um, so that shrunk. America, we've probably picked up and we and proportionally spend send more of our stuff to the states. Mm. Um, and from from here, we send it out as a product called uranium oxide, and from here it goes to enrichment plants, 
where it goes through an industrial process and becomes an enriched fuel suitable for use in a commercial reactor. Mm. Yeah. Dave, um, interesting situation in Western Australia at the moment where their Conservation Council and the local um, Jawari Native Title Group uh, taking the government to court over a decision made by the previous government, a an environment effect statement, um, the, the, the environment body over there opposed a, a new uranium mine, um, the Yaliri mine, and yet on the eve of the election, the government, the previous government, approved it, and now they're taking them to court based on the fact that they approved it, despite the fact that the recommendation was that it didn't meet the environmental standards. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, 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 it um, not only didn't meet the environmental standards, but we strongly believe it is in absolute clear contravention of those standards. Um, this this project it's in it's in um, uh, the goldfield uh, region, uh, Norfolk Helgooley, um, currently owned used to be owned by Western Mining Corporation, uh, and um, then BHP when they took over WMC. And now it's owned by Cameco, the big Cameco, Canadian yeah. producer. Yeah. Um, but basically what this actually says and what's been proven is that this project would be responsible for the extinction, not the depletion, but the extinction. We do not exist on the face of the earth anymore. Um, of about a dozen of these uh, steiger fauna, these uh, subterranean uh, little critters that live in the aquifer. And they are only there and um, they would be finished. Now, the Environment Protection Act and a whole range of legislation on both state and national level um, is there to work against extinction and to protect species and biodiversity. This mine would destroy them forever. So that's the basis of the legal action. We're saying it cannot be lawful because it's not compliant with the primary purpose of this important legislation. Um, and it's a real test. It's a real test of like um, the importance and the validity and the the the, the robustness, the guts of of um, environmental laws and environmental protection regimes. Um, and you're exactly right. This was like um, you know a couple of days before the election, the lights were burning late, as the then uh, state environment minister, who subsequently. The weekend after, lost not just the election but his own seat. Yes. And he had said, by the way, previously that he, he recognised that it was environmentally dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, look, his own highest level advice from the department said, do not do this one. Mm. And it is very rare, I can tell you. I've been in this trade for a while and it's a rare day where you get um, a, a state or federal agency, particularly in such a resource-friendly state as mm. WA, that says no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Normally they say yes, but... Dave, yes, we're but out of time, conditions. unfortunately. We've run out of time. Well, we're um, like the nuclear but, industry. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but we're much, we're much less dangerous. <laughs> uh, but look, we will follow up. Um, we, we haven't spoken to you for a while and we ran out of time this morning, but there's so much to talk about, Dave, but thanks for your time. I know you've come out of a meeting, so thanks for your time this morning. No, it, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thanks, man. Thanks, Kevin. Okay. Thanks. thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Dave Sweeney there from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And, um, yeah, then on the program, next week, back the transport, round the cycle goes around. Yep, that was fascinating. I had more questions yeah. next time. Next time, yeah. because we'll get him on again. Yeah, we yeah. will, because... Uh,
is good value. Mm. Okay, Andy, thank well, you. Thank Andy for doing a great job. Andy, thank you. Always a pleasure. Tell people it's transport next week. Next week we're talking about transport on city yeah, limits, yeah. which is a fascinating issue.